welcome back to the Grant Rant, a Hanover Research Podcast. Every month, we will be answering follow-up questions and chatting on topics from our monthly webinar series. Anyone who attends or listens to those webinars will have the opportunity to send additional questions to podcasts at hanoverresearch.com for us to tackle here. I'm Mallory Waters, uh, the host of the, podca- of the podcast, and I'm usually joined by my co-host, Katie, but she is enjoying some much-needed time off, so I am flying solo today with my two guests. Um, this month, our webinar was on diversifying funding, both as an individual principal investigator, or PI, and as an, as, as an institution. And we have our two grants consultants from that webinar here today, Christina Weaver and Jamie Hayford, and they're going to answer some questions and chat about this topic. Uh, do you guys want to do some quick intros, Jamie? We can start with you. Sure. Thanks, Mallory. Um, my name is Jamie Hayford. I am one of the grants consultants here at Hanover. I've been here for about two and a half years. And before that, um, I got my PhD in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology, and then went on to do a postdoc in immunology. So I am coming at this from um, both being a scientist in a past life and also now transitioning, uh, having transitioned to grants full-time. I'm looking forward to the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks. Go ahead, Christina. <laughs> Sorry, Mallory. I was chuckling during your intro, Mallory, when you said you were flying solo, because I know you have wanderlust these days, and you're looking I forward do. to some solo trips. I am going to live vicariously through you. Um, my name is Christina, and I am the uh, resident social scientist on the podcast. Um, my PhD is in cultural geography, and I've also had a career as an environmental mediator, um, which is just to say that a lot of experience doing sort of community engagement work that can come in handy in, in grants consulting. And then I've been a grant writer since around 2010, uh, most of those years with Hanover, and I'm a single mom in a pandemic, so life is fun every day. Thanks, Christina. Yes, I'm. I'm sure everybody's feeling uh, the you know pandemic stress, but especially when you're you know <laughs> a single mom. And don't you have a rabbit too? <laughs> that you. I do. I have a rabbit who we just call Bunny because my daughter gives him a different name every day. I love it. I love it. Um, great. Well, thank you both. Uh, today we are chatting about diversifying funding and when to do it, how to do it, and why to do it. Um, so to get us started, let's talk a little bit about the common scenarios we see our clients in. Um, Jamie, let's start with the PI perspective. Um, so a PI comes to Hanover and wants to diversify their funding. What is the common scenario or scenarios that they are typically in? Is it something where they have foundation funding or seed funding internally and want to expand outside of that? Is it that they have a federal grant with a single agency and want to look at other agencies? Is it both of those things, all of those things, other things? Tell me what you normally see. Yeah, Mallory, this is a really good question. Um, And we see all of those things. Uh, There's a lot of different scenarios in which a a PI might be looking to diversify their funding. Um, But I would say one of the most common is really just the new PI who isn't sure where their research fits yet. Um, You know, maybe they have recently transitioned from a postdoc position to running their own lab um, and they know where their PI was funded through, but they haven't really put out feelers yet to see where they're going to have a good fit. Um, so that's a really common scenario that we see. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because 
you know, you have to get some feedback from funders before you know what is going to be a good fit for your work. Um, and then the other thing that we often see is with more experienced PIs who are just not having good luck with any funder right now. Um, so sometimes this happens when someone is continuously funded by a particular agency over the long term, um, but something shifts in the research priorities of that agency or something shifts in the PI's research direction and they're looking to diversify. So, you know, in some cases when you're continuously funded by one agency over your career, it's not necessarily on your radar to diversify because you don't really need to. But in cases when your research is sort of less on the uh, cutting edge of what your funder is looking for, or you're finding yourself moving in new directions, that's when we see a lot of PIs diversifying. Great. So those situations where the PI may have that coveted R01 and they've had it for years and years and years, and then for whatever reason, they need to find someplace else to go or they need to find a different source of funding. So that's the kind of thing that you're talking about there. Yeah, exactly. And when we're talking about, you know, if you're talking about an established PI who's had that bread and butter R01 forever, a lot of times what we see in terms of diversifying is they want to move into a new research direction, or maybe they recruited a new grad student or a new postdoc who has a little bit different background than their, their lab and brought some new ideas in, and they're trying to branch out and see whether they can move in that direction in the long term. Great. Awesome. Jamie, that actually uh, brings up um, something that you and I talked about just yesterday. We had uh, we had a conversation with a postdoc who said um, that she joined this senior professor's lab and he ultimately changed a lot of what he was researching to accommodate her background. So um, I think that that really resonates and that's things that we see every day. Um, great. So Christina, same question from a more institutional perspective. What are we usually seeing that prompts a client from that kind of level uh, to want to diversify their funding? Thanks, Mallory. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it does vary so much um, by institution. But generally, you know, I think grants, institutional level grants are becoming more and more important in higher ed um, as other sort of sources of revenue um, shift in different ways. And often grants become an important place for institutions to look when they want to both advance their mission to serve students and also their strategic priorities around things like um, equity or 21st century um, kind of career pathways. So, so ways to kind of help students um, in new ways and, and make their communities um, align better with their, with their strategies and their missions. Um, so the work that I frequently do with clients at Hanover, um, they're looking to, to expand beyond some of the grant mechanisms they already know and pursue frequently, such as some of the Department of Ed mechanisms. And they're looking, for example, at the National Science Foundation for opportunities that will help them um, do something a little bit different. So this could look like a university pursuing an NSF advance grant, which is aimed at addressing issues of race and gender equity in STEM faculty. So it might be a way to get funding to hire, hire more uh, faculty of color, for example, that, that might be difficult to do with existing resources. Or it could be a community college that's wanting to 
invest in a new degree program and needs the resources to do that. And they're looking at something like the NSF Advanced Technological Education Program, which is all about training students to go after the hottest careers in IT. Um, So I think it just allows you to kind of uh, still be fulfilling your mission, but doing a little bit more than you're able to do with just tuition revenue or state or federal dollars that are not coming to you through grant mechanisms. Awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think, I think Christina, you probably see it a little bit more than I do with the types of clients that, you know, you typically work with. But um, absolutely, I think we've all kind of uh, seen clients, especially now that we're seeing a lot of funding from the new administration coming out towards those more diversity programs and towards, um, you know, things that are meant to really, um, you know, encourage students at, you know, community college levels to in, to pursue some of those STEM careers. And I think we're seeing a lot of shifts at that more institutional level towards those types of programs and towards those types of um, initiatives. Um, I want to touch on, oh, sorry, go ahead, Christina. Well, I was just going to say that I think that's absolutely true. And for example, I was recently working with a client on an NSF advance and, you know, they were saying they've known for years that they're having a really hard time recruiting and retaining um, women faculty of color, but they also know that until they get that particular grant, they're just not going to be able to move the needle in the ways that would otherwise be possible. So right. I think that sometimes these these large institutional level grants can make a huge difference to the organization's culture and trajectory over time. Absolutely. Um, and if you haven't watched our uh, previous podcast, I think it was episode two, where we were talking about the budget, we talk about these big institutional grants and, um, and how much preparation you need to take. So go back to that podcast and listen to that because do not try to apply for one of those big institutional grants on a four week timeline. Um, I want to touch on another really important question that came up uh, during the webinar. Um, I have a lot of strong feelings on this one, Um, but it was submitting the same project to two different funders. Jamie, I know you gave a really nice and really nuanced answer to this question. So I want to dig a little bit deeper. I think usually when I see this, I see a client with the same grant that they want to submit to multiple funders and kind of uh, see what sticks, take that approach. Good idea, bad idea extremely bad idea. (laughs) What are your thoughts, Jamie? Yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts, um, given your strong opinions. But for those of you who maybe weren't able to tune into that webinar, um, we we talked about this. This was one of the questions we answered um, live. And one of the things that I talked about was um, that generally speaking, this is not a great idea. And I'll expand on that in just a minute. But One of the things I did mention during the webinar is that sometimes this approach works for new PIs who are, uh, as I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, trying to figure out where their work fits. Um, So sometimes applying to two places at once can allow you to get feedback from both places and then sort of decide which one is a better bet for future submissions. So that was one of the scenarios that I talked about um, during the webinar. But I think that there's a a lot of challenges with this approach. So one of them you just mentioned, Mallory, you were talking about institutional level proposals, but even at the PI level, uh, putting together a full application for any funder is not trivial. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort to get to know what that funder is looking for. And so one of the big challenges here is asking yourself if you actually have time to really put uh, the effort into applying to two places at the same time. Um, 
And right now, I'm actually working with a PI who applied to two different funders with essentially the same project. And this work is really highlighting one of the other big challenges with this, which is that different funders have such different priorities about what they want to spend their money on. And so uh, their reviewers' comments on this project are really reflecting why this is a problem. The reviewers at one agency are really expecting to see one specific thing, and the reviewers at another agency are expecting to see something completely different. Um, so it's really difficult to take one project and try to fit it into two, two different boxes, especially when you have a limited amount of time. Um, so I have some other stories, but Mallory, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts if you had follow-up questions about that. Oh, I have stories. I have stories too, Jamie. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that makes me cringe is when I see a proposal that's being submitted to um, a program or an agency, and it's very clear that it was written for a different agency because of the type of terminology that they're using. Um, you know, it's rare, but I do have clients that kind of their work intersects nicely between NSF and NIH. And so they'll submit to both places but they're using the wrong terminology. So they're submitting to NSF using things like specific aims, which is very NIH language, or they're submitting to, NI to NIH using broader impacts um, and that sort of thing. And that makes me cringe. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, that's one of the most common problems that we see. Um, and it's, it's about terminology, but it's also about understanding your audience. Sure. And, um, and it's also about understanding where your research really fits. And I, I would imagine that there are a number of people listening today who think, yes, I'm, I'm one of those people who can walk that line. And it's actually really rare um, to yeah. be able to, to do that effectively and to be able to put out um, a project that really fits. I mean, NSF, NIH is a classic example, but there are other examples as well. And in the, in, at its worst, this can really burn bridges um, mm -hmm. for you with those agencies. So, you know, uh, there have been instances, they're not very common, but there certainly have been times when a PI has been awarded funding or, um, you know, the award has been pending from both of those agencies. And it's really burned a bridge when they've had to come back and say, actually, the other agency is funding it. So you want to tread really carefully when you're thinking about doing this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it can be triggering. Um, if I was on an NIH panel, and I saw something come through that was talking about broader impacts, I would know immediately this is someone who did not appropriately revise this proposal. This is something that they've just basically submitted here when it when it went to NSF first. And it would be something that automatically tainted the way that I would look at it. So Absolutely. I think that's another thing that you got to. Yeah. So I think that's another thing that you got to keep in mind. Well, and one of the things that that we spend a lot of time doing as grants consultants is helping PIs understand that part of what you're doing when you're writing a proposal is managing your reviewers' emotions to a degree. <laughs> so you want to keep them happy while they're reading. You don't want to give them these red flags as they're going through your proposal that sort of tick them off and get them ready to find the negative parts of your, of your project. So it's a great point. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest red flag that I have with this. And hopefully for most of our PIs and our faculty, they're working with an institution that has an office of sponsored research who has somebody there who is very versed in the pre-award policies. Um, but it is not, you are not allowed, 
usually in 99% of cases, you are not allowed to get federal funding for the same grant from two different agencies. Um, It's not allowable. It's called cost sharing. um, And it's not allowed. So if you get a grant from NSF, and you have a budget written out within NSF, and then you want to get NIH funding to cover the costs that NSF didn't fund, that's not allowed. Um, You have to you can use foundation funding, you can use private funding, you can use other things like that. But by and large, that's, that's not something you're going to be able to do. And then you're in the situation that you just mentioned, Jamie, where you're you potentially have two grants that were awarded and you're going to have to really anger one of those agencies and potentially burn a bridge by turning back that money. Um, and, you know, I talked to um, one of our other grants consultants, uh, Brian DeBusk, who was on one of our earlier podcasts, and he said that he has been in this situation where, you know, one of the agencies basically said, don't ever come to us again. And <laughs> <laughs> and just really made it made it really clear that they were very unhappy with that. And then the other agency said, sure, just take whatever funding you want. So you're really, you know, you don't know how they're going to react. You don't know how that particular program officer is going to react to that. So it's just it's just something you got to be really, really careful of. And I do think it's worth mentioning, since you're talking about things that are prohibited, that there are certain agencies or even directorates that will not allow you to have your project um, or your proposal under review at multiple places at once. One of them is the NSF bio directorate, but there are certainly other examples. So make sure you're paying attention to what's allowed. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I could do a whole podcast on this topic, but let's move on <laughs> for now. Um, I have a sort of a devil's advocate question, Christina. Um, so uh, just take that as it is. <laughs> um, if an institution is really well funded, they're not changing their mission the way that you were kind of talking about. They, they're not, you know, changing from a culture of teaching to research. They're not expanding or really changing their demographics or their strategic priorities. Is there really a reason for them to diversify funding? So if we have a client that is really heavily privately funded, um, not really any federal grants, but they seem to be doing fine. Is there any reason why they should try to, you know, diversify funding? Um, or is it something where they should just, you, you know, where they're fine as they are? Mm-hmm. Um, Before I answer, Mallory, I just want to say, Jamie, that I really love the concept of emotionally intelligent grant writing. I'm definitely going to use that. Um, But in terms of this devil's advocate question, my my first thought is I'm just not sure that that unicorn actually exists, an institution that is both well-funded and is also, you know, not not really seeking to kind of push the edges of of their strategic plan or their mission. Um, But it gets me thinking about what's happened in higher ed. So, you know, I think the landscape of how higher ed institutions are funded has really changed in the last 20 years, uh, particularly in the wake of the Great Recession and then continuing into the present day. And for many institutions, sources of funding, and here I'm thinking about public institutions, but things like state funding um, and federal funding have significantly reduced So you have, you know, institutions that are still trying to meet their core mission and to innovate um, and and have fewer resources to do it. And I think this is why we've seen, you know, the trends of of things like rapidly rising tuition rates, but also trends like pushing the costs um, away from 
the, the, the central administration of the university or the college and, and towards the schools and the departments. And as a result, everybody is sort of squeezed and everybody at every level of the institution really does need to think um, about diversification. So I think that the first answer to the question is I'm just not sure how many institutions are even in that position. And then the second is that these landscapes can change quite rapidly based on sort of macro political economic conditions. And so you might you might be in an institution that is doing quite well and even largely privately funded. And it might not be that, you know, that way in a decade. And so you want to, with grants, you always want to really have a long-term strategy. I mean, I think Jamie speaking to the PI perspective, you get the sense that, you know, this is, this is something that you build over a career and an institution uh, builds a track record with securing and managing institutional grants, you know, over, over generations, really. So you got to play the long game and you, you really need to be thinking all the time about diversification. Um, one quick story on what's happened in higher ed prior to coming back to Hanover recently um, to be a grant, a grants consultant. I, I had a stint at a public flagship university where I helped to direct a center that, that used to be, um, quite able to fund itself through sort of contract work. Um, but increasingly, because of that kind of shift at the institution where the costs were being pushed down, down, down to the school, to the department, to the center, grants became a huge part of what we had to do. And we were constantly looking for new funders, constantly cultivating new foundations and collaborating to pursue new federal projects. Um, so that became a huge part of, of, of the role that we had that I had to take on as the associate director. So you just never know what the future is going to bring. And, and you need to really be thinking about grants as a piece of your strategy uh, long term. No, that's a great point. Um, you know, and a follow up story, I started my grant writing career um, right after the or right around the same time as the 2008 crash. Um, and I think what we saw there, you know, is the foundation, it, you know, it took maybe a year or two for it to fully start to hit. But I think we saw a lot of foundations, um, all of a sudden who were prolific with their giving, they had to really shift and change the way that they were giving out dollars. Um, and so a lot of institutions and entities that were heavily reliant on those private funders, all of a sudden, <laughs> the well was, you know, drying up, and they had to start to look elsewhere. So um, excellent point about sort of the macro um, economic conditions that we may see ourselves in. And I think COVID might have been a little bit of like a microcosm of that, too. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think that's happened with foundation funding, again, with COVID, where, you know, many funders that are actually wanting to fund innovation, and, you know, new models for social change, sort of deliberately retooled and began to fund kind of basic human services. Um, yeah. I'm not thinking more of the maybe nonprofit sector, but I think the point remains, you know, innovative organizations that were really relying on being able to cultivate those funders had to themselves find new strategies when, yeah. you know, the needs shifted so dramatically. Yep. Nothing's ever certain. <laughs> That's the bottom line. <laughs> um how far, and this one, either one of you, I'd love to give your feed, I'd love to get your feedback on how far should a PI stretch to diversify funding? Um, I think we walk a really fine line when we note that proposal should be written for the funder. And I think that's critical. Um, Jamie, you were talking about how every agency and every um, announcement from that agency has very specific priorities. Um, 
And the PI should absolutely be making sure that they're aligned to that. But I think we also see PIs that are trying to really change their research um, and maybe get off the path of what they really want to be doing to fit a funder in the name of trying to, you know, diversify funding. Um, so I'd love to hear from both of you about you know, what does that balance look like? Yeah, this is a like this is a really important question for PIs who are at really any stage in their career. Um, and I think that it, it depends on what exactly your research is focused on. But one of the things that we see happen in this area a lot is that PIs start thinking, you know, oh, I just need to get money. I just need to get some dollars to do the work. And they start branching out too far. Um, they get too far afield from where their own expertise lies. And there's an opportunity here to talk about collaborations and how to um, bring in other experts to help you expand your, your uh, skill set. But also you want to make sure that um, anything that you're applying for, you can still point to a track record of experience in that particular area. So publications in that area, collaborations in that area, um, anything that you can point to that is sort of tangible for your future reviewers or your current reviewers to be able to see that you have that expertise is going to help. And where we see PIs get into trouble is when they don't have that um, evidence of their expertise or their experience. Mm -hmm. Speaking from the institution perspective, I think what you um, alluded to earlier, Mallory, about maybe it was one of the the prior webinars um, where we, we we talked about just how much time it takes to produce one of these proposals. I think it's always got to be sort of a cost benefit, very strategic decision. Um, and it's, you know, really incumbent upon uh, those who are wanting to spearhead an institution going after one of these grants to make sure that there's a strong project team in place, like sometimes up to a year in advance of when you're hoping to submit. Um, that there's a strong leader on that team who's going to make sure that there's accountability to getting the work done. And then that there's a really good, solid sort of project management plan for the proposal. Also a really strong link to institutional research so that you can get the data that you're going to need to substantiate your case for getting the funding. And, and things like putting in the time to do the lit review to make the case for innovation. These things can take hundreds of hours to, to pull together. And that's, um, you know, hours spread among a team. But, but often everyone on the team is putting in that kind of time. So you really just want to think strategically. Make sure that you have the capacity and you have the leadership to do it well. Um, and then, you know, make sure that you're also in it for the long, the long game. So that if you're not funded the first time, you, you're going to have some longevity with some of those contributors to the process who are going to be willing to kind of pick it up the next cycle as well. And I would say a lot of that advice really applies to individual PIs as well. You know, Christina, you're talking about it from the perspective of the institution, but as a PI, your time is limited as well. And, you know, one of the things that we haven't really touched on in the podcast today is that, you know, first submissions are often not funded. So as a mm -hmm. PI, keeping that strategic that strategic plan in mind is also really helpful. And it's easy to get away from that as we start thinking, oh, I just need to go after more money. But really thinking about how to spend your time is going to be a more valuable approach. No, absolutely. And that's a great point, Jamie. It almost 
always the first time that you submit at least a federal entity, you are not going to get funded. Um, you can, um, but it's not really super common. And I think, you know, Jamie and I, we were talking to a faculty member yesterday who um, was talking about sort of these uh, K awards or the, you know, career awards that we see coming out of NIH. And uh, this particular faculty member said, well, I'm going to apply for it. And if I don't get it, then, then I'll take that as my sign not to go in this direction. Um, and I think we both kind of said, well, if you don't get it, you'll be right alongside everybody else who, you know, first submits to NIH um, and doesn't get it because you'll get some great feedback. And then you can decide whether or not this is really where you want to go. But excellent point about first submissions are almost, you know, never funded. Um, but that doesn't mean that your idea wasn't good. It doesn't mean that it's not a good fit for you. It, you know, if anything, it's a really, really great opportunity to take a look and see what your summary statements says, see what the panel thought about your project and, you know, use that to kind of advance your career. How important are things like Incura and Nordup? Um, and Christina, I'll let you talk about what those are. Um, and other kinds of professional associations for an institution when we're thinking about diversifying funding and, you know, alongside that developing relationships and, you know, collaborations with other organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, my partner is gearing up for a job search right now. And I've been thinking a lot about how does one really get a job? And as we know, it's so often uh, the relationship building and the networking. And it's the same with grants. You know, it, it is a long game. I think people who are excellent at, at networking, at meeting program officers, at learning about what's being funded out there, they're often the most successful. And success begets success in grant seeking. Um, so NCORA is the National Council of University Research Administrators, and NORDIP is the National Organization of Research Development Professionals. And these are probably the two most important professional associations for sort of institution administrators to join in order to network. Um, and if you go to their annual meetings and conferences, you're going to get to meet with funders, with agencies. You're going to get to meet, you know, peers at other institutions, other, other staff and administrators who are spearheading really innovative models that are getting funded. And you're also going to meet grants professionals who who can assist and advise. Um, so it's it's really great. I'm sure that you know some of their meetings have now gone virtual, but uh, that makes it even more accessible. Um, so really encourage folks to lean in if they're not already um, doing that with those associations. Um, and in terms of you know obviously it's a, it's a good thing to be cultivating relationships with funders and uh, program officers. But also, like I said, getting to have a sense of what are other institutions doing to create more equitable campuses or to increase, you know, hiring a faculty of color, for example. What are the innovative models in STEM education? Increasingly, what I'm seeing um, with the NSF, for example, for the institutional grants is they're wanting to know that you have a sense of what's been successful elsewhere in the country and that you're proposing something that's building on those lessons learned and those best practices. Um, so in order to get to get that sense and that lay of the land, you do need to get out there. You do need to meet people. You do need to build those relationships. And uh, Christina, since you mentioned NSF specifically, I know you're responding um, more from the institutional perspective, but as a PI, there are opportunities to hear about what's happening at your funding agencies um, through their own conferences. So the, the NSF and the NIH have periodic conferences that are designed to 
sort of bring people into the world of what's happening at their agency um, to update people on, you know, maybe guidance and other things that have changed, but also to give you a chance to interact with program officers and other other investigators and other research professionals um, and hear what's happening and how you can really align yourself to, to be competitive at their agency. Um, one of the places where this is really important is the Department of Defense. Their uh, program officers are notoriously difficult to get a hold of, but if you're able to attend one of these conferences, that's a really, really great way to get your foot in the door. So, um, you know, it's helpful at the institutional level to get your finger on the pulse. And also as a, as a PI, you have some opportunities to do that as well. Absolutely. And also as a PI, um, I think we've mentioned this before on our webinars and in our podcast, but sign up to sit on a panel, sign up to um, be a reviewer that can be so instrumental in learning uh, about what an agency is looking to fund and kind of how they look at proposals as they come in the door. And uh, most of the federal agencies, they have a way for you to sign up to do that. Um, I have one more question here. Um, and here's a question that came up during the webinar. Um, and it has to do with funding being lost. So if, if you have funding and, um, you end up losing it and it's been several years, how can you come back and get funding? So coming back to that same agency and, you know, getting the funding again, um, part of this I think is going to be hinging upon the reason that you lost that funding. Um, but I think that this could be answered from both the PI and from the institutional perspective. So Christina, do you want to kind of take this first and then Jamie, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Okay, great. It's a great question. And when I think about how it relates to an institution, what I'm thinking about are cases I've seen where there might be a particular, you know, funding mechanism that has been renewed several times. There's a program that you've kept alive for a number of years. But then perhaps because of a, a gap in a change in leadership, whether at the sort of senior administrator level or at the program staff level, um, that, that has fallen by the wayside. But then you have new leadership again, and there's a desire to kind of reboot that funding stream and reboot the uh, programs that are made possible by it. So I actually recently worked with a Hanover client that was in this predicament. They had successfully stewarded a certain NSF institutional award for several cycles um, in, in the past. And then there was a long period and a fairly significant gap. Um, and then there was new leadership and a, a new dean really wanted to, to push forward and get this funding again so that they would be able to better serve, in this case, its students at the doctoral level um, in, STEM, in STEM fields and um, students from historically underserved backgrounds. So I, I kind of watched this team assemble to try to deal with this conundrum. And I thought they did a number of things well. And there were also a number of kind of cautionary tales for institutions. Um, First, I was impressed that they did start really early to assemble a strong team of people who were willing to work hard to kind of get the proposal written and to think very strategically about how to explain why was there, lap why was there this lapse. Um, they also reached out to a program officer early to get advice and, in this case, encouragement to go ahead and resubmit. And then one of the biggest challenges they faced is that there wasn't great... Um, preservation of data from the kind of early years of the program. And so they had to work hard to kind of reconstruct the data. Um, to, they had to do some even primary research and reach out to people who had been employed in the past. 
Um, and then they also had to think about, well, what do we know about maybe what wasn't working in the past that would be different now, given the current strengths of the institution? So there was a lot of strategic thinking to kind of explain why that gap could become a positive given the current leadership in the current setting. And, you know, I think what they ultimately pulled together is going to be very competitive, but it probably just even took, you know, more time, more strategy and more wherewithal and, and certainly more kind of early outreach to the funder to, to pull it off. So from the PI perspective, this is going to be, you know, a pretty different answer, I think, from what Christina said in some ways and similar in some ways. I want to acknowledge first that being in this situation of being a PI who has been continuously funded and then having the experience of losing your funding is incredibly frustrating and very disheartening. And there's a few things that you can do if you're in this situation. A lot of times we see this with sort of mid-career PIs who have been heading in a certain direction or sort of have um, their basic research program running in the same way for a long time. And then it's no longer quite as exciting to their funder. Um, Or maybe it's kind of become the status quo. Maybe they spearheaded a particular area of research and now it's been picked up by a lot of people. And so what we see is that you have to push the needle further than you were before at the beginning of your career. Um, So as difficult as it is, you want to be thinking about how you can move that needle and how you can sort of reapproach that cutting edge. So some ways to do this are to think about collaborating with um, either new investigators or just investigators who are sort of outside of your direct wheelhouse to see if they can help you to develop a new skill set um, and sort of branch out into a new area. If it's been a while since you've been funded um, in any area, you want to prioritize publishing in the specific area that you're hoping to get funded in. I talked a little bit about this uh, earlier in the podcast, but, you know, it's really important to establish that uh, specific evidence of your experience. So if you're trying to branch out into a new area whether it's diversifying or just sort of getting that funding back, you want to make sure you have some recent publications that you can point to and that you can cite in your grant. Um, Even if that means publishing as a collaborator rather than a corresponding author, that really helps you to bolster that um, evidence base. Um, I would also recommend that you check out seed funding to branch out in a new area. Um, I knew several PIs in my previous life as a researcher who had been in this situation of sort of losing their funding mid-career and finding that the work that they were doing wasn't really uh, as exciting to funders as as it was to them. And so they um, found some new opportunities for some smaller grants that really allowed them to branch out into new ideas. A lot of times seed funding or internal funding will fund things that are a little bit more high risk um, to sort of let you see whether it's a good research direction to go in. So I would definitely recommend doing that as well. And then, you know, get into the swing of talking to your program officer again. If you haven't spoken to them for a while because you haven't been funded, reach back out, talk to them about the current priorities at the agency, maybe have a conversation with them about what's been funded um, recently that you might be able to move toward. So it's a it's a frustrating situation, but there are definitely some things you can do to try to uh, set yourself up to be successful regaining that funding. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to reiterate that it is extremely frustrating, uh, whether you're a PI or whether you're at the institutional level, and you experience this, um, but you're not alone. I mean, we see this frequently. Uh, this is not something that is, you know, necessarily rare. Um, and, you know, I think Christina and Jamie both, uh, you both covered um, some really good strategies on how to, you know, address this. Um, and I do want to reiterate that, you know, communication with the program officers, communication uh, with, you know, collaborators, that is so key. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, specifically PIs, I think sometimes don't entirely feel comfortable reaching out to PIs just to begin or reaching out to POs just to begin with, let alone when you're in this sort of um, kind of situation where you've lost the funding. But it is so, so critical. Um, And if you want to have some more uh, guidance and thoughts about reaching out to program officers, just go back and listen to our first uh, podcast, which we covered this uh, with senior grants consultant Brian DeBusk, um, and then the associated webinar as well. Um, we've been talking a lot today. <laughs> I think this is our longest podcast yet. What a great conversation. Um, but I think we are about out of time. Um, so I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. And I think we really covered um, some really great topics and um, expanded upon uh, the webinar conversation that we had. Uh, so thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you, Mallory. Thanks, Mallory. This was great. Um, a quick reminder on a few of Hanover's other resources that are available. Uh, if you're a client, we have the grants portal, which contains a lot of great information on our previous podcasts, webinars, reports, templates, and other resources that will be really helpful for faculty members in all stages of their career, um, as well as um, some of the things that are going to be more um informative and helpful from the more institutional perspective. Um, Reach out to your contact for the Hanover Partnership for more information on these resources and how to log in. Um, Hanover's next webinar is on October 21st, and it will be on keys to a competitive trio upward bound proposal. Katie will be back and will be joining me for the podcast on that, which is great because upward bound and trio programs are not my ballywick. Um, that webinar is open to everyone. So uh, reach out if you need uh, more information on how to sign up for that. If you have any questions following that webinar, any questions following today's podcast or any of the other webinars or podcasts that we've covered, feel free to send them along. You can send your questions to podcast at hanoverresearch.com with the subject line podcast question. You can also leave me a voicemail at 202-499-6736. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon.